Holy Spirit, you're reminding me right now of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it is exhaled by you, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction, that the men and women of God might be equipped for every good work. So I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take the Word of God, which the Bible says is the sword of the Spirit, and that you would wield it in our hearts to cut away with great precision and care, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The Bible says, would you cut away the excess, cut away what's unnecessary, cut away sin, cut away encumbrances and the things that so easily entangle us. And bring the balm of your healing and your conviction and repentance and leading us to faith in Jesus. Holy Spirit, these are works that you alone can do, and I am relying on you to do that. Would you please speak through me? Thank you for the word. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as the people of God. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. He is alive. He is in us and with us. And on the basis of that, we come to the Scriptures and we say, Holy Spirit, teach us. And I pray specifically for anyone who's here this morning who does not know what they believe about Jesus or who who has not encountered Jesus Christ in their own life. I'm so thankful, Father. I believe that in your sovereign plan, you brought all of us here today. You have a reason for every person being in the room who's in the room right now. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a supernatural work and that every person who's here would see Jesus Christ today. May he be lifted up. Amen. In January of 1995, I met a man who would become my first mentor. His name was Pastor Richard Dix, and I met him when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. I was 19 years old when I met him. He was 60, and he treated me like a peer. He took me under his wing. He had planted three churches in Illinois. He had gone to Bible college in Michigan. He was a civil engineer in a little town in Michigan and felt the Lord call him into pastoral ministry, and so left his job and went to seminary and then became uh, a pastor and a church planter, and, and then kind of, you know, toward the end of his life, at 60, he was assigned to an old, old church in the middle of Lincoln Park, the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city, and he was going to do a church revitalization project at this church that had been there for over 100 years. There were five people in the church when he got there, so he called Moody Bible Institute and said, please send some students to help me, and I was the first one on the scene. And for the next two and a half years, as a student, I basically served as an intern at that church with Pastor Dix and his wife, and I learned so much about pastoral ministry and about church planting from Pastor Dix. He treated me like a peer. Um, He treated me with great respect. We would talk on the phone every week and plan the worship gathering, and he, he really mentored me and took me under his wing. And a few months ago, I sent him an email, we're still in touch, and I was asking him about some contacts out in the West Chicago suburbs, which is where he and his wife lived for many years, and I was asking him uh, for a friend who needed a place to, to live, and I was just checking in on him. And this was his response to me on October 5th of just this past year. Hello, Abe, good to hear from you. Hope your family is well and rejoicing. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't do the math, he's 82 years old. Church planting and growth is difficult as we have a formidable enemy. Praise God, however, for a defender and the Spirit's work in our lives. Keep the faith! Two exclamation points. It's always a joy to see lives transformed and growing And that is often in times of trial. Love your people. 
I'm sorry we can be of no help to your friend. And then he talks about how they actually moved uh, back to Michigan to be closer to his family. We returned to the church we came to 50 years ago when we came to this town to go to seminary. Some folks are still there, and most everyone knows us as they have always supported us. We are getting involved. Tonight, Wilma, that's his wife, works in Awana, and I will be in the prayer time. We're in some Bible studies, and I'm leading a men's study on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. I've been working on this for several years and taught it a few times in Illinois. The key word is let. Let him do in us what he wants to do. I try for lots of discussion. I tell the guys, I have never learned anything from listening to me. This Friday, we will continue to look at the Holy Spirit's work on and in the Old Testament saints. Wish you were here and we could get your thoughts. The book of Titus is a little, I mean, it's, it's a lot more than, than this email. This email is a little bit like the book of Titus. This man has loved me and mentored me and taught me about ministry and life and marriage And when I get an email from this guy who's known me for 22 years, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have ever planted a church in Tacoma in 2001. He instilled in me a love for church planting. When I read this kind of stuff from him, like, love your people, and I hear about an 82-year-old man who joins a church that he was a part of 50 years before, and he's like, well, we're just trying to get involved. I'm like, man, I hope that's me when I'm 82. I mean, talk about inspiring and motivating, right? I mean, my relationship with Pastor Dix, it has transformed me. It's changed who I am. And that is the reality of the power of relationship, right? The core relationships of your life have a massive practical impact on your life. Relationship is what makes you. It's what makes you who you are. Relationship by its very nature is transformational. So I want to give you a question to think about right now, and then in a few minutes, I'm going to hear some responses from you. So you have a few minutes to really think it through. I want to ask you, what have been some of the most formative relationships in your life And how have those relationships impacted the way you live? Try to think about it in practical terms. So what have been some of the most formative relationships in your life? And how have those relationships impacted the way that you live? Like I said, we're going to come back to that. But I want to begin to just give you a bit of an overview of the book of Titus. So here's where we're going in the next few minutes. I want to talk about Paul, who wrote the book. I want to talk about Titus, the recipient of the book. I want to talk about Crete, which is the geographic location where Titus was at when he received the letter and where he was doing ministry. And I want to talk a little bit about the context for the letter, some things that were going on in Crete when Paul was writing to Titus. I want to mention a few sub-themes and some topics that we're going to look at as we go through the book. And then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking the main theme of the book of Titus. So keep that question in your mind for these next few minutes. What have been some of the most formative relationships in your life and how have those relationships impacted the way you live? So let's talk first about Paul, who's the author of the book. Paul, the apostle, was writing from an unknown location between his first imprisonment in Rome, which is recorded in Acts chapter 28, and a later imprisonment, which is unrecorded in the scriptures, but that's the imprisonment where he died. It was written around the same time as 1 Timothy, roughly 30 years after Jesus. Okay, About three decades after Jesus is when this book is being written. And you cannot read a book written by the Apostle Paul without keeping in mind Paul's story. Because Paul's story always impacts his writing. And in a nutshell, here's Paul's story. Paul was a violent persecutor of Jesus' followers. When the church first began in the city of Jerusalem, Paul was a very zealous Jew and he hated 
Christians and he wanted to wipe them out and kill all of them. And then he encountered Jesus Christ. And his life was radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he went from hating the church to being willing to die for the church. And he planted churches all over the Mediterranean region. And he was persecuted and beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and homeless and hungry because he loved Jesus and the church. So right away, when we get into this book, I want us to keep in mind the guy who wrote this is a prime example of the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are reading a book written by a man who encountered Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never encountered Jesus Christ, I want to say he can change your life. And you're here this morning and you have encountered Jesus Christ and you're still struggling with like, am I ever going to change? I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ can and will change your life. He can and will change your life. It's a long journey, okay? It's a long journey, but stay in there. You got people like Pastor Dix who are 82 years old who are still getting after it. Keep the faith, as he said. He's writing to Titus. Who is Titus? Well, Titus is mentioned about a dozen times in the New Testament. He's mentioned like nine times in 2 Corinthians alone. In the book of Titus, in verse 4, we, write, we learn that he is Paul's true child in a common faith. This almost undoubtedly means that Paul was the person who led Titus to faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that Paul calls Titus his true child reminds me of Isaiah 54, verse 1, where the prophet Isaiah says, Sing, O barren one. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. The prophet is looking forward to a time when after the Messiah has come, which he foretold in Isaiah chapter 53, there's going to be this reality where you, even if you're not married, even if you're single, even if you're married and you can't actually have kids, whatever your situation is, even if you're a widow, like whatever your situation is, you can have lots of spiritual babies. That's what he's talking about. Paul's an example. He's unmarried and he says, Titus, you're my true child. He says the same thing to Timothy, by the way, in 1 Timothy. So I want to encourage all of you this morning regardless of whether you're married, whether you have kids, not married, don't have any kids, like all of you, if you have the spirit of God in you, you can reproduce. You can reproduce. You can have spiritual kids. And most of you probably, probably think like, man, I'd love to have some kids. I'd love to have a family. That's a great desire. That's a godly desire. But don't let that actually trump your desire to have spiritual kids. Have spiritual kids. And by the way, that's what we're going to be talking about at the men's retreat, is how to give away what you have, how to, in a sense, reproduce yourself as a follower of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, about Titus, we learned that he was a Greek, and he was, in fact, uncircumcised. That's a big deal, given the context of the letter. We'll get to that in a second. But in terms of Titus being a Greek, I just have to point out that Paul was clearly committed to an ethnically diverse ministry and leadership team. Titus, along with Luke, were both Greeks, non-Jews. Timothy was actually a half-breed, and he was uncircumcised when Paul met him. As a devout Jew... Gentiles would not be high on Paul's list of people to pick for his leadership and ministry team unless Paul really believed that the gospel tears down all the dividing walls between all the different ethnicities and says that Jesus Christ is really actually trying to build a church that has all ethnicities present. Paul must have believed that. He must have believed that. Otherwise, he never would have given leadership to an uncircumcised Gentile like Titus. But you don't get any hint of, of his like holding back or being concerned about that. He completely embraces Titus, even though he's a different ethnicity. 
Titus was a man who traveled to Jerusalem with Paul, according to Galatians 2.1. In 2 Corinthians, we find that Titus brought rest and comfort to Paul, and Paul calls him my partner and fellow worker. So this is a guy who's really trusted by Paul, even though he's a man that Paul led to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about Crete for a minute. Crete is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. We have a map here to give you a sense where, of where Crete is located. Currently, it is a part of the nation of Greece. Okay, uh, It is straight west of Cyprus, which is that island over there. We have one reference in the New Testament in Acts chapter 27 of Paul spending time on the island of Crete, although it was brief. He almost certainly went back later to help make disciples and begin establishing churches. You can see in the bottom right-hand corner, just for reference, that's Jerusalem. And then straight north of Jerusalem, just in that little niche part of Turkey there, that's where Antioch is located. And that is where Paul was sent out from on his missionary journeys. The churches in Galatia are all scattered around the nation of Turkey. There. So that's just a little reference in terms of where Crete is located on a map. Contextually, here's what's going on with this letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete. Pretty important verse. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if we read through the rest of the letter, we would find that Paul is leaving Titus there, so that implies Paul was there with Titus, and then Paul leaves, and Titus stays. I want you you there to bring the church of Crete towards health. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's really two things present in the context of the, the island of Crete that were hindering the church from a place of health. The first thing that was hindering the church in Crete from a place of health is the cultural reality, the cultural context of the nation or the island of Crete. And the cultural reality was very worldly and ungodly. Now, being the genius missionary that he is to make his case for the ungodliness and worldliness of the people of Crete, Paul actually quotes a Cretan author in chapter 1, verse 12, says one of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. I agree with that. I agree that that's how the Cretans are. But notice how smart it is for him to not be the one to say it, but to say, hey, one of your own guys says that you guys are all like really messed up. I think he's right. I think he's right. It was one of the best-known business centers of the ancient world. A lot of trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of wealth here. And because of that, uh, Crete was proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian Polybius wrote that it was, quote, almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Crete, in a word, was a very broken place. Now, on the other hand, there's one other thing going on in the context of Crete. Paul's confronting false teaching, which has infiltrated the churches on the island of Crete. Now, this false teaching emphasized external conformity to things like circumcision. He mentions in chapter 1, verse 10, the circumcision party. And this false teaching also emphasized things like keeping the law. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul tells Titus to avoid quarrels about the law. So this false teaching focuses on changing a handful of behaviors that people could control and therefore did not produce health or good works flowing from a pure heart. Now, this is the same false teaching, this circumcision party, 
sort of religious spirit, the Judaizers. We talked about that when we went through the book of Galatians a while back. You might remember that. It's the same religious spirit that Jesus confronted in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he essentially says, look, you Pharisees, you pride yourselves on the fact that you've never actually slept with another man's wife. But guess what's going on in your heart? Tons of lustful thoughts. You pride yourselves on the fact that you haven't ever actually killed another person, but guess what's going on in your heart? Tons of murderous, hateful thoughts. So essentially, Jesus is saying, look, there's no difference between you Pharisees and all these like sinful riffraff people I'm hanging out with. In your heart, you're just as depraved. You're just as broken. You're just as in need of grace. And of course, the Pharisees didn't see that. A few adjectives to describe this false teaching. It's pharisaical, prideful, self-righteous, externally focused, controlling, lifeless, empty, fake, angry, hateful, focused on behavior management. Sadly for some of us, we feel like, ah, that's a pretty good description of the Christian church. For some of us. So I hear about this context in Crete, and I honestly can't help but say, Wow, that is so similar to the world in which we live. I mean, right? On the one hand, our country, internationally, our country is famous for moral decadence. We're famous for that. People say horrible things about one another. Greed fuels our economy. You can't even buy coffee at a drive through espresso stand without being confronted by our highly sexualized culture. I mean, coffee, seriously? We're already addicted to it. We don't need half-naked women to sell it. I mean, I don't understand. At the root of a worldly, ungodly mindset is the notion that no one can tell me how to live my life. We want to say what we want, Buy what we want, do what we want, look at what we want, eat what we want, have sex with whomever we want. We want to be our own God and Savior. Now, if we're all honest, don't we see some of those thoughts and desires like lurking inside of us? I certainly do. I certainly do. There's a part of me, that's not the true me, but there is a part of me stuck in this sinful flesh that regularly wants to just push off restraint and just say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. That's still in me. And on the other hand, there's still a large group of people in our country who try to manage and control behavior in an effort to feel better about ourselves or to prove that we're better than other people or to pursue relationship with God we also want to be our own God and Savior. And I think if we're honest, we would say, I see that in my heart too. I see a lot, as as I look at my history and my story especially, but still present in my heart is a lot of self-righteousness and pride because I have managed to control a short list of moralistic behaviors. See, here's the thing about moralism, and here's the thing about the false teachers in Titus. If you peel back just that surface, that facade of like, yeah, I've never actually slept with another man's wife. I've never actually killed anybody. Like, I show up at the gathering, you know, regularly on Sunday. If you peel back that stuff, guess what's present in my heart and in the hearts of a lot of religious people? Greed, hatred, pride self-righteousness, the same stuff that the -the run-of-the-mill folks out in the world are just like, yeah, that's just how I roll. But the religious people just try to cover it up under a thin veneer of moralism. That's the world in which we live. I just want to ask you to consider this question for one one second. We're not going to dialogue about this, but I think it will be helpful for us to think about those two, like the worldliness and the religious spirit, and ask yourself, which of these wage war against your heart with greater force? Which of these do you find yourself battling against more often? Is it the worldly mindset or the religious mindset? 
okay? And I think both are in play for just about everybody. And both at the end of the day are saying, I want to be my own God and Savior. So real quick, a couple sub-themes. And then we're going to end by talking about the main theme. I just want to give you a kind of a little teaser here of some things that we're going to end up talking about. Okay, so hopefully this gets you excited for the book. By the way, I want to encourage you to be reading the book. We, we put the book of Titus in the reading plan like four or five times this year because we knew we were going to be in Titus for a while. We, it, we haven't put it in there yet. The first time is in March if you're following along. But the thing of it is with the book, it's so short. It's so short. You could read the book in probably 30 minutes max, like easy. So I'd encourage you to be reading the book of Titus. Here's a few of the sub-themes. And this is just a sample. There's more. But this is just a few I wanted to highlight this morning. First of all, there are, one, two, three, four, five uses of the word sound. Sound doctrine, sound faith. The word actually means health. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is encouraging Titus to lead the churches of Crete towards health. This stands out to me because what have we said is the theme for Soma Tacoma for 2017? Establishing healthy patterns. What a gift from God that we would be in this book that's about church health. When we are at a place where we're saying we want to be healthy, it's a gift. Another sub-theme, the dynamics of church leadership. One commentary I read said that the believers in Crete lacked leadership and were suffering as a result. Now, one of the blessings that we identified last fall was that by God's sheer grace, there's been humble plurality of leaders, a plurality of humble leaders throughout the history of Soma. That's God's grace, and I just want to say we have a lot more room to grow in that, and this book is going to help us understand the dynamics of how church leadership works and how church leadership helps lead a church towards greater health. Finally, one other sub-theme. There's this interesting interplay in the book between authority and submission. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You, you, you get the sense of Paul telling Titus like, Hey, you need to, you need to bring it kind of strong. Right? He uses words like urge and insist and rebuke over and over again. Now, obviously, that's within the context of the very first verse, which says, Paul, a bondservant of God. So we're servants of God. We serve as leaders. But Paul is exhorting the leaders to say, hey, like, be clear, be direct, be loving, but be firm with your authority. And then on the other hand, there's this submission theme through the book. Chapter 2, verse 5 Wives, submit to husbands. Chapter 2, verse 9, servants or slaves, submit to your masters. Um, Chapter 3, verse 1, all of us submit to the rulers and authorities. Now, I realize the word submission is fraught with lots of difficulty. Okay, it probably raises the ire of some of you, and I understand that. We'll We'll be spending like a whole week just talking about the roles of men and women and gender roles and all that, that topic, like the book addresses it. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Here's, I think, one of the main deals with, with submission is it's throughout the whole New Testament and everyone is called to submit to someone. So no one's exempt from submission. So if we have an issue with just the concept then we have an issue with New Testament Christianity because James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, and Ephesians 5, 21 says, submit to one another. So those are like the foundation pieces that that the rest of submission gets built on top of, okay? But we have to really grapple with that. Just so you know, that's something we'll be grappling with. Also, some other topics we'll be digging deeper into. We'll be talking about church discipline. There's a short passage at the end of the book that talks about it. We'll be talking about healthy and unhealthy use of alcohol. Alcohol comes up a few times in this book. We're going to talk about slavery in the Bible. Uh, slaves are mentioned in this book. Some believers in the past, in the not-so-distant past, have used verses like this to justify 
human trafficking and particularly the African slave trade in the United States of America, sadly, very, very sadly. And so we actually want to address the topic of slavery and say, here's what the Bible really says about slavery. Um, By the way, it's not for it. Okay, so back to the question. Back to the question. What have been some of the most formative relationships in your life And how have those relationships impacted the way you live? What have been some of the most formative relationships in your life? And how have those relationships impacted the way you live? I would love to hear from a number of you on this question, if you'd be willing to share. Okay? Your husband? What's been some uh, practical impact of that relationship? Okay, great. So for you, your marriage has been a great context to work out what it means to be a servant in the ordinary, mundane things of life. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That's amazing. So just being around other believers in a shared living situation is the thing that brought you to faith. I'd say that's a fairly practical impact. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, yeah, Rachel. That's great. Just her very presence and the way she received you and responded to you in the moment really communicated the love of Jesus Christ for you and his acceptance. It's awesome. Stephen, I think I saw your hand. I love hearing stories of professors at colleges who kind of take their ministry to the next level by really investing in students in that in that way. That's amazing. Man, it's too too bad. Maybe we could get him to come speak at our men's retreat. <laughs> He's probably got a thing or two to say about how to how to pass on what you've got. Well, we could, we could all, literally all of us, have multiple people that we, could, that we could share about, honestly. Because relationship is what forms you, okay? So the reality as we, as we come to, to this letter is this, that knowing about God will not change your life. Knowing about God will not change your life. Truly knowing God is what will actually change your life. There's a few ways to kind of think about this, like framing up of the theme before I get to the exact statement of it. There's a couple things that that the book sort of implies. Here's a few ways of saying it. We always live what we believe. We always live what we believe. The word faith, which is the same word for believe, it's like just translated different ways, is used six times in the book. So it's a big theme of the book. And really the, the emphasis that Paul is bringing to Titus is like, help believers understand that what they believe is what is going to get lived out. Okay? So you can think about that two ways. You can start with like, well, what do I believe? And then what are the practical implications of what I believe? Like, how should that actually practically impact my life if I really believe this about God? But you can take it the other way too, and you can say, okay, well, how am I living my life? And what does that reveal about what I believe about who God is? In chapter 2, verse 10 After talking to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves, and to Titus himself, Paul says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. With your life, you are figuratively wearing your theology. You're wearing your doctrine. The way you live preaches a sermon. You are preaching all day, every day, and you are saying, this is what I believe about God, and this is what I believe about what he's done for me through the way you live your life. And so Paul is saying, hey, tell the Christians how you live matters massively. It's of massive importance Because you're communicating a message about who God is and what he's done through your life. And to state it negatively, 
chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. The very works that we do have the potential of saying, I don't believe in God. Actually denying God. Now when we truly encounter the living God, it changes us. That's what happened to Paul. It gives us an entirely new identity as sons and daughters. It gives us a new heart that wants to love God and obey him. It gives us new power to actually walk in a different way because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is wrapped up in this main idea that Paul is communicating to Titus, this idea that a real encounter with God's saving grace will always change us, okay? So here's how we're going to phrase it. The theme that you're going to hear say over and over again, grace teaches us to do good works. Grace teaches us to do good works. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about why we chose that theme, and then I want to unpack it and apply it to our culture real quick, and then we'll be done. So first of all, the word grace appears four times in the book. It appears in the salutation, um, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior in chapter 1 verse 4. And the very last sentence of the verse is grace be with you all in the closing. And then in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, there's a reference to God's grace. I'm going to read those in just a minute. To define grace, we say theologically grace means unmerited favor, right? Well, to simplify that a little bit, it means getting what you don't deserve. That's what grace means, getting what you don't deserve. And I think we could take it a step further, and there's other really smart guys and theologians who have taken it this far. It's grace is getting Not just what you don't deserve, it's getting the opposite of what you do deserve. So for example, you could say, well, I don't, I don't, I didn't show up to work today, so I don't, I don't deserve a paycheck. And so grace would be getting a paycheck, even though I didn't show up to work today, and I don't deserve anything. You could say, well, actually, you didn't show up to work today, you actually deserve to get fired. That's what you deserve. So not only are you not going to get fired, you're going to get a paycheck. You're getting the the exact opposite of what you do deserve. That's grace. And one of the things that I've learned in the past year as I've struggled to recover from serious burnout is that grace is not a commodity. It's not a commodity like gold. Okay, Grace is a constant like gravity. And I have seen grace as a commodity, as something that God gave me when I needed it, and something I could come and receive more of when I needed more. Now that understanding of grace, of like, oh, I messed up, and now I need to come and receive this grace from God that he's going to dispense that reveals a transactional understanding of relationship with God. That he has something to give me and that I get it from him when I need it. But grace is not a commodity. It's not transactional. Grace is a constant. It's a relational dynamic. It's, it's environmental. It's in the air. It's part of the atmosphere. It surrounds you. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So relationally, you are at peace always with God. Think about that. You're never at odds with God if you're a Christian. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're always at peace with God. Always. But then chapter, verse 2 says, And we have also obtained by faith in Jesus access to, into this grace in which we now stand. So grace is a place. It's a thing you come into, right? And think about it another way, if I can use a Star Wars analogy. Grace is more like the force than it is like a dollar bill, okay? Remember Obi-Wan's description of the force? It's all around you. It's in everything. It's 
It's in episode four. You have to go look, check it out. <laughs> that is a little bit of what grace is like with the massive difference that the force is impersonal and grace is highly relational, okay? So practically, what this means for us, and then I'm going to read these passages, what this means is, and I've just begun to get my head around this just this week, relationally, I'll do my best to, understand, to explain this, God is always in the same place towards you in relationship. He's never in a different place in his relationship with you. Now, that's actually hard to get our minds around because there's no other relationship that we experience where, where like, the place that I'm in in the relationship doesn't impact the place where the other person is at in the relationship. It's very symbiotic. What I do impacts where they are relationally. Now, what we do impacts God in a sense. Like, he's grieved by our sin, okay? He's absolutely grieved by our sin. But in terms of his posture toward us, in terms of where he's at with us, it never changes. And that is the environment of grace that you and I get to swim in and live in all the time. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. I think that includes your sin. We can't separate you from the love of God. So, I want to read through two passages and then apply them to the cultural context briefly. We'll be done. The first, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It's short, but there's a lot in there. And I want to help us see briefly this relational understanding of the grace of God. That it's not just a thing that God dispenses, it's part of who he is and how he relates to us all the time through faith in Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We do have this passage and the next one on slides here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Throughout the book, Paul refers uh, to God as our Savior. This idea of salvation and saving is a theme of the book. And he's not just talking about what Joanne referenced a few minutes ago, that our sins are forgiven so we don't go to hell when we die. He's certainly talking about that, but he's talking about way more than that. That he, he has saved you from yourself and he saved you from your flesh and he saved you from the devil and he saved you from sin and he's brought you into relationship with himself and who did he bring salvation for everybody training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so here he's confronting the worldly mindset and he's saying the niv says it this way the grace of god teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The world says you can be your own God and Savior. The religious mindset says you can be your own God and Savior. Titus says Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. And that he didn't just appear the first time at the incarnation to live a sinless life and to die on the cross. He's going to appear again at his second coming, and we will see him in fullness, and both his first coming and what he's done for us and what he has promised to do for us in the future, it should change us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. That's sacrifice language. If you're tracking with us on the reading plan, we just finished Luke this week, and I was rocked as I read the crucifixion narrative because we've been walking through Luke, and I'm so captivated by the character of Jesus Christ. He's such a unique person. He's strong, he's bold, but he's compassionate and tender and loving, and he's fearless, and he came to change the world. And then he got nailed to a cross, and he didn't even say a word to justify himself against false accusations, and he was tortured to death. It's a brutal story. It's a brutal story. And that's what Paul has in mind when he says that he gave himself 
for us to what? Redeem us. Redemption means I'm coming into the slave market and I'm going to buy you out of the slave market. Redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Again, he's talking about the worldly perspective. Passing our days in malice and envy. And this is a sad phrase here. Hated by others and hating one another. That was, Paul says, that was us. But, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. There again is that total idea of salvation. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of, and these two words are massive here, regeneration. That means like new birth or new creation. And renewal, which is obviously to be made new, of the Holy Spirit. So that's the, what the Holy Spirit has done in you. He's made you new. He's given you new birth. He's given you new life. The Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. If he was a thing, verse 6 would start with the word which, which he poured out on us. But the Holy Spirit is a person, so it starts with the word whom. Whom he poured out on us. You are indwelt with the Spirit of God. That's why grace is relational. It's not transactional. That's why the Bible says nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because God's in you. He's in you. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There it is again. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's another reference to the future. Jesus didn't just come once and save you. He's coming again to bring you home. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, which parallels the end of the previous one that says that we are a people who are to be zealous for good works. So, how does this apply to the worldly mindset? The worldly mindset says, I don't care about God. I'm going to live my life however I want. No one can tell me what to do. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, look at what God's done for you. Look at what he's done for you. How could you continue to live in rebellion when God has laid his life down for you? And if you're here and and you say, yeah, you know what? You say like grace teaches us to do good works. That's what I thought Christianity was all about. I thought you were just trying to squeeze me into a religious mold and make me do good stuff. That's not the point. God saved you. He saved you. He offers salvation to you. And if you receive it, guess what? You're going to want to do good works. You're going to want to do good works. You're going to want to leave behind your old lifestyle and say, I'm going to live a new life because Jesus gave his life for me and he's coming again. And I'm going to see him face to face. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, his Holy Spirit is right here, right here, always giving me grace and love in every single moment. And how does grace teach the religious person to be devoted to good works, to do good works? Well, the religious person likes that theme because he says, yeah, do good works. I'm all about doing good works. I'm all about doing good works. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, well, first of all, your motivation for doing your good works is not grace. It's not response to what God's done. You're trying to manipulate and control your relationship with God. But second of all, the things you think are good works aren't actually good works. We need, the, we need the spirit of the living God to produce the fruit of the spirit in you. Things like self-control, things like purity, things like holiness, things like love. And guess what? The best Pharisee or religious person in the world cannot fake love. You can't fake holiness. You can't fake self-control. You can't do it. And so the gospel says, hey, that good life you're trying to live, guess what? It's a facade. And the grace of God confronts it and says, your good works don't save you. The good work of God saves you, and all you can do is respond to it. So Titus has a lot of good news for all of us. Titus has a lot of good news for all of us. As we come to the table, 
I want us to keep in mind the life and death of of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ because this book talks about both, okay? He didn't just come once to take away your sin and give you his righteousness and give the Holy Spirit and then say peace out, right? He's coming back. He's coming back, and we're going to see him face to face. And in the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit of the living God. Grace changes you. And there's some of you in the room who are going, yes, I believe in the grace of God, and I want to continue to be transformed. You're going to hear a lot about that through this book. Okay, but there's others of you who might be on that worldly side and say, you know what, I'm still really pulled to do what I want to do. And the book is going to confront you and say, in light of what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, how could you do anything but gladly submit to him? So let's stand together. I want to pray and then send us to the table. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for these amazing, powerful gospel nuggets that are in Titus, these two passages that we just read. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do right now of carrying these words from my mouth to the hearts and lives of people. Thank you for faithfulness to our church family in the last 12 years that in some ways we have had a zeal for good works. I think in other ways we have done a lot of good stuff in the power of our own strength and we're tired. So would you train us, Holy Spirit, in this reality that it's grace God's grace that teaches us to do good works. And Jesus, as we come to the table and we receive the bread and the wine, we celebrate the fact that it's not our works that save us, but it's your work that saves us. And we recommit ourselves to going out and saying, we want to be a people for God's own possession who are zealous for good works. And we thank you that you have called us to do good works in all of life so that the world would see. Just like 1 Peter 2.11 says that people would see our good works and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So send us out as your people to do good works in a city that's broken, in a city that needs you. Holy Spirit, minister to us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to the tables.